Just Thinking with hosts Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week-to-week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking broadcast. I am Virgil Walker and my dear brother, the star of the show, Daryl Dangerous Harrison or Daryl Hollywood Harrison. D Money, he is out. Uh, and for the record, I do realize that it is Daryl who is the one who has given me the moniker of Omaha. And let me just be clear I'm not mad at that. In fact, I rather enjoy it. However, since he is the boss of the show and it's not usually fitting to give the boss a nickname, I tried to abstain from doing that. So to be clear, I'm not violating this clearly expressed rule. And to be fair, it is you, the fans of the show, that have dubbed Daryl with these fantastic nicknames. And I thought I'd run him, run him by, you know, you uh, and out there in the, the atmosphere, so to speak, uh, in his absence uh, for your review and then ongoing discussion. Man, I'm ecstatic to be with you all and to have an opportunity to uh, to share with you the the topic uh, for tonight, uh, man, it is it is a tremendous privilege uh, to be a co-host on this show, uh, to be a part of Just Thinking, uh, and to experience all the great things that are coming our way as a result of you, uh, the fans. So I want to begin by thanking you, our listening fans, who have done an incredible job of of pushing our show to just greater and greater heights. There's been a tremendous buzz as of late with the latest editions of the show, from the show that we just did on socialism to the show on reparations and even our most recent show on worldliness in the church. We have absolutely witnessed an increase in interest with more of you sharing and subscribing and commenting in social media about the Just Thinking broadcast. So on behalf of Daryl and myself, uh, we're incredibly humbled uh, and grateful that the show has been edifying to so many of you. It's been incredible to get emails and inboxes and tweets and all the like uh, from each and every one of you with regard to what you're experiencing uh, having listened to Just Thinking. So just want to take a minute to, to say thanks. In, in addition, I've got to shout out my man, uh, Dwayne Atkinson. Now, I don't know if y'all listened, if every one of you listened to the previous episode, the one previous to this one uh, that we did on worldliness in the church. And uh, some of y'all, if you've been followers of the podcast, know that we've been talking about that Hammond B3. Uh, well, our man Dwayne hooked us up by giving a Hammond B3 intro on the latest episode. And if you didn't catch that, you've got to go back and listen to the episode previous to this one to see what our producer Dwayne did uh, on that one. We, we, we always say that he is the hardest working man in podcast land, and we're forever grateful uh, for his work on our show. He has so many other shows that he does and that he puts out. Uh, on the bar uh, network. And so you definitely need to check out uh, those other shows. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you uh, to make sure to go to, to stop by uh, the bar gear, the bar gear, uh, dot com and check out some of the, some of the, I had to, I had to get some of y'all have been following me. Now I've kind of, I've lost some weight. So I've had to, had to get uh, a new wardrobe. And so I've been picking up some different items and I just want to encourage you uh, as well to stop by there. Every bit of that helps us out, helps the network out, helps us out. And so we'd love for you to participate 
in that way. Now, with Daryl out, I promised each and every one of you a heavy dose of the elect standard version of the scriptures. And that, as is our habit on this show, we won't, we definitely won't, won't shy away from the scriptures. But I, I want you, if you, if you put away uh, your your elect standard version, I want you to grab it, pull it out. Uh, this is our time. This is our, this is our show. Daryl gave me a hard time. He said, you know, you get one, one out of fifty-two shows to go hardcore with the elect standard. So we're, we're going to take advantage of that as an opportunity. And uh, I just want to encourage you to grab that out. We are going to be jumping. Uh, into the scripture. So, but for, before I jump into the subject for today, I wanted to tell you how I landed on our current topic. And the topic is a biblical view of capitalism, a biblical view of capitalism. Now, after Daryl and I finished the episode on reparations, uh, we knew that that episode had the potential to be in- explosive. Uh, and if I remember correctly, Right after we finished our recording of that episode, uh, we'd asked Dwayne if he could if he could put a rush on getting that show out for our listeners. Now, shortly after that episode dropped, we began looking for the next topic. And it was at that point that I mentioned to Daryl that we, now emphasis on the word we, should do an episode on capitalism. One of the things that I absolutely love about Daryl is that he has an, an instinct uh, almost a, a sixth sense, if you will, about the timing for specific topics and issues. And it's something that I've come to, to really enjoy about him. It's something I've come to trust. Uh, and while he wasn't against doing a show on capitalism, he wanted to put a bit of space between a show on, on socialism and then following one up right after that on, on capitalism. Now, as we prepare for our shows, I told him, you know, I'm all in on whatever he wanted to do next, even if that didn't include capitalism at the time. And I thought it would be good for us, emphasis on the word us, to revisit the topic of capitalism at some point. Rest assured, I had no idea that he would encourage me to take on such a huge topic in his absence, right? And and uh, it's just like him. He's thinking, okay, we do big topics. Yeah, v I'm going to let you do it. Omaha, I'm going to let you do it. Take care of it. Do your thing. And so uh, I get the opportunity to, to run through that uh, particular topic with you. However, with that said, I'll do my best to address the subject with the level of excellence that you've come to expect on the Just Thinking podcast. Now, as we usually do on Just Thinking, I want to begin with a verse of scripture. So dust off that Bible, pull out that elect standard, and let's get busy and do some work. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Verses 27 and 28. And here is what you will read from the elect standard version. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, I could stop there and, and, and do a whole show on issues around gender identification against, you know, biology and the biology of man and a biblical anthropology. But that's a that's another show for another time. Let's continue reading. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 from the elect standard. 
Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. I've already given you my topic of biblical view uh, on capitalism, biblical view on capitalism, right? You might be thinking, is Virgil really going to try to say uh, that God is a capitalist? You know, is he really going to try to use Genesis one twenty seven and following to make that case? Well, my answer is, is this. I do not believe. No, I do not believe that God is a capitalist. Right. However, I do intend to make the argument that the fundamental tenets of capitalism begin with a proper biblical worldview. As it pertains to one, the sovereignty of God, not government, and two, the stewardship of man and not members of Congress. Now, I want to say that again. I intend to make the argument that the fundamental tenets of capitalism begin with a proper biblical worldview as it pertains to one, the sovereignty of God and not government, and two, the stewardship of man and not members of Congress. Now, with that in place, Let's begin with a clear understanding of what is capitalism. Now, on the Just Thinking podcast, we always begin by defining our terms. And so we're not going to do anything differently uh, today. So here's here's what we want to do. In our episode on socialism, Daryl walked us through uh, seven specific defining aspects of socialism. As, it, as I began to look for a solid definition of capitalism, I found a few sources that I thought might be worthy of our discussion here. So here's what I found. Uh, I, think, I think this was from, from, from Webster's of all places, Webster's Dictionary. Right? Capitalism is a sector of an, of an economy in which markets, not government, determines the prices and quantities. I want to I stop there because by, by markets, what's meant there are individuals in the marketplace right by markets that's what's meant so capitalism is a sector of an an economy in which individuals in which markets determine prices and quantities and in a capitalist system both both the market for goods and the market for inputs are based upon voluntary actions within the constraints of some governmental interventions in the form of taxes subsidies restrictions and mandates. So let me go and kind of make that clear. In a capitalist system, both markets for goods, those items that you purchase, and inputs, those needs that you have, are based upon voluntary actions. So I have a need, you have a good. You have a good, I have a need. You're going to make goods based upon my needs, and and I'm going to be seeking those goods based upon, you know, or the fulfillment of my needs through the goods that you provide. Right. All of those are voluntary actions, again, within the constraints of some governmental interventions. Those governmental interventions are taxes, subsidies, restrictions and mandates. So there's a second definition that I thought was was interesting. And so let me let me lay this one on you. Capitalism is an economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods. So now what we're dealing with is not just the sale, but we're also dealing with the with the ownership, right? With with the uh with, with the privatization based upon an individual ownership, uh private or corporate or, or or corporate ownership of capital goods by investments that are determined by private decisions and by prices, production and the distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market. So again, voluntary actions taken on by the individual within the marketplace. These are private decisions, the price of which is determined by the individuals who are in the system. 
right? So it has to be a mutually beneficial exchange rather than something that's that that's not, that's something opposite that. Does that make sense? One of the things that I found helpful uh, was to have a clear definition also of what what is capital. So I'll give you a brief def- definition of capital, and then I want to make some quick comments and contrast about what we've covered. So brief definition of capital is, is basically capital is basically defined as wealth. That is money and or goods. Uh, these these are what is used. These are the things that are used to produce more wealth. Now, for for some comments based upon what we've we've covered so far, I found a, a really interesting uh, article uh, in a in a a, um, a space called Progress Progress dot org. An author, professor, and economist by the name of Dr. Fred Foldvary, if I've said his name correctly, F O L D V A R Y. And I I found his comments interesting about the about the word capitalist. He said, "quote The term capitalism." first used in 1854 by William uh, Thackeray uh, in his novel Newcomes. The term capitalist was was previously referred to, or, I'm sorry, the term capitalist was used rather previously to refer to an owner of capital goods. And the term was popularized by a German sociologist by the name of Max Weber, as well as by other socialists who used the term to condemn private enterprise as a system that exploits labor right so the term capitalist is really a pejorative really is a is, you know bad word that was used in in condemnation of those uh, people who had who had private enterprise who who involved who involved themselves in private exchange right now in response advocates of free markets used the term to mean private enterprise and to praise the concept of a free market economy end quote now, in the media, we often hear advocates of alternate economic systems do exactly what Thackeray and others did with regard to free markets in the 1850s. They label capitalism as negative and attach to it pejorative terms in an effort to expose its excesses, all the while arguing that the excesses are representative of the whole. So so what do I mean? In our day and time, you'll hear terms like crony capitalism. Right. And and what's intended by those who are advocates of, say, socialism or some Marxist, other Marxist form uh, or communism or, or 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 something worse. Right. Anarchy or what, what have you. Uh, they'll they'll what they'll do is they'll label capitalism in bad terms, in pejorative terms. So they'll say, well, you've got crony capitalism and they'll go on to talk about about the issue of, quote unquote, crony capitalism. And what they what they'll do in those instances is they'll use that term to try to say that everything that involves capitalism is, quote unquote, crony capitalism, uh, using the excesses as representative of the whole of capitalism. The truth is crony capitalism is the result of preferential treatment of businesses on the basis of government intervention how do they intervene they intervene through through fixed regulation through special taxation and special privilege crony capitalism can only take place where government has overreaching or overarching ability to intervene and reduce the risk that is inherent in a free market 
So here's what's happening. A, a capitalist decides that he wants to involve himself in something, uh, you know, not not right rather than rather than dealing with the, the free market exchange. He knows someone who's running for political office. And what he or she does is rather than engage in the free market system, he engages in investing in a politician getting to a particular position in office. And once that politician is in office, they in turn do a favor to the person that helped get them there uh, in an effort to help that business. Perhaps they they create laws that help uh, or, 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 uh, or unfairly advantage a particular business or a particular company. That's crony capitalism. Or they use the funds of the government, which are which are taxation in an effort to to make purchases or buy uh, the, the product of that individual who helped them get into office. That's crony capitalism. The only way that that happens is as a result of the overreach of government in the first place, right? That mitigates the risk that, are, that it's inherent in a free market economy. So for a clear definition of crony capitalism, there's an awesome five-minute video by Prager University called, or PragerU called, What is Crony Capitalism, and I'll, I'll place it in the show notes uh, for you all to check out uh, and see what you think of it. Really, really informative. Now, it's best to discuss capitalism uh, in terms of, of free markets or free market economies, and and there's where th- there are a variety of, of styles of a free market, a variety of types of free market economies to choose from. At best, our current system is more of a mixed economy where much of the economy is free. And open and without government as far as setting and establishing prices and individuals and private individuals still owning and and producing as they see fit. But but this this free market, however, stands alongside our free market here here in the United States, stands alongside government intervention. And and that and and that uh, that government intervention, depending upon the party in power, uh, seems to be ever increasing uh, by the day. Now that we've defined our terms, let's go back to my initial premise. And so my initial premise, here's what I stated. I stated that the fundamental tenets of capitalism begin with a proper biblical worldview as it pertains to the sovereignty of God and not government and the stewardship of man, not members of Congress. Now, what do I mean by this? To begin with, I walked through Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 and following. Now, why did I do that? I did that because those who founded the country, right, the founding fathers, uh, as flawed as some would argue they were as human beings, right, there were a number of things that they got right. As, as I even mentioned founding fathers, I'm already thinking of the of the current political narrative, the current cultural narrative about, you know, they were slave owners, they were this, they were that, they were, you know, oppressors, they were the patriarch. I'm already, I, I've already, unfortunately, because of our education system, had that in the back of my mind. So I've got to put the caveat as if it's something new to say that the founding fathers were flawed men, right? N- no one expected them to be perfect. We, we know scripture says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us are sinners, but it's with that that I've got to state they're flawed human beings that were not perfect in any way. But there were some things like everyone, uh, like every one of us, there were some things that they got right. One of the things that they got right was that they held to a biblical worldview and the founding of our nation. And the founders 
from the Puritans to the Pilgrims to the signers of the Declaration of Independence. They understood and held to a biblical worldview as it relates to the sovereignty of God, especially. They had a fundamental notion that God controlled everything and that they were but stewards of that creation. That was clear to these men that apart from God and our continued focus on him, we as a nation, in fact, would be lost. Now, this idea of God's sovereignty in all things, it can be be tracked back to the very beginning of the founding of our nation. As we as we look back to the founding of the country, we can note that it was in, in 1607 that the first permanent English settlement would be founded right in Jamestown, Virginia. However, the first founding documents wouldn't be written until around 1620. That was known. It was what would come to be known as the Mayflower Compact, right? The Mayflower Compact written in 1620. There were 102 passengers of the Mayflower, right, that would come over. And uh, they as a group uh, and, and many others that would that would follow them would begin to spell out the reason for them embarking upon a trip that would take them from the old world in Europe into the new world and the Americas. Right now, while we all while we all call them pilgrims, those who came off the uh, off the Mayflower, the, the Mayflower at Plymouth Rock were pilgrims. Right. Nearly 40 passengers were Protestant separatists. Now, they, they didn't call themselves pilgrims. They considered themselves or called themselves the saints. And they had hoped to establish a new life, a new church away from the persecution that they found uh, in the old world. And they, they desired to experience those things in, in the new world. Now, the founding document, again, known as the Mayflower Compact. He, let me let me quote to you a little bit of, of what and how it reads. It reads in this way, quote, in the name of God. Amen. We whose names are underwritten have undertaken the glory of God in the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern part of Virginia. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant to combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation, end quote. Now, I, I, this is not all that the, that the document states, and, and what I did was I pulled uh, portions of it because I wanted to amplify something that was stated uh, by them, and that is the purpose of them, of their leaving where they were and coming to this new place in the Americas. They've undertaken this voyage for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith. Now, they do this in honor of the, of the king and country from, uh, from which they come, and they, they do so to plant the first colony in northern Virginia. Um, they do it in the presence of God and one another, and they covenant to combine themselves together in a civil body politic for, the better ordering, for, uh, for their better ordering and preservation. I just think this is interesting to note that the whole reason that they're arriving, they have a biblical worldview that's innate. Now, not only the pilgrims, or rather the saints, as they preferred to be called, held a biblical worldview and all that they and, and, and in that they felt all that they did was for the glory of God. 
There would be the, they, secondly, the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence had the same thought process. They felt that they believed that God was completely sovereign in all the affairs of men. So, so why did I pull these examples? One, I wanted to show you that from the very founding of the Mayflower Compact, the first document that we have signed that, that, that origin, 102 signatories originally set out, they write this document stating that the reason that they're coming is, is for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith. I also want to show you that the founding fathers, those those signers of the Declaration of Independence, held a similar biblical worldview about God's sovereignty and their role uh, in the orders of that sovereignty. Right. So men like uh, men like John Adams, the second president of the United States from 1797 to 1801 in his letter to a family member. Here's what he he had written. June 21st, 1776. Adams would write this. And I quote. Statesmen, my dear sir, may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. Now, this is this is a, a writing by Adams as he's thinking about the, the, you know, the Declaration of Independence, as he's thinking about about uh, the, the the leaving of the old world, the the the, the standing uh, in the new and how they are to develop a moral compass, a moral country. And what he says uh, in his letter is that that there men of all types may plan and speculate for what this liberty is supposed to be all about. But it is religion and morality alone which establishes the principles upon which freedom can secure, can securely stand. Right. Religion and morality alone. Right. A biblical world view. Now, that was Adams who had entered Harvard College in 1751 at the age of 16. And he had been inculcated with a biblical worldview. Now, the vast majority of education had been filled with the tenets of Christian faith, right? So everywhere you would go, whether it was uh, in elementary school uh, with the New England Primer, which had all kinds of biblical references that taught our kids how to read and how to write and how to put things together. All of it was taught on the basis of a biblical worldview. All the way to the college of, of our day, which was Harvard, uh, the, the the tenets of Christian faith and the biblical worldview were self evident. In fact, um, H- Harvard is is one of the first one of the first uh, universe or one of the first colleges uh, that we had uh, in our country. Harvard had uh, in its a, a document called the the Harvard Rules and Precepts of 1636. Let me read you something that come that comes from that document. It says this: "Quote: Let every student be plainly instructed." And earnestly pressed to consider well, the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John seventeen three, and therefore lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all knowledge and learning. End quote. <laughs> now, when I read that, I, I couldn't believe it. I was. I'm thinking that is crazy that they were that explicit. In what they shared uh, at Harvard University it's a handbook that they're giving to students called the Harvard Rules and Precepts of 1636. Let me read that again. Quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3. And therefore, 
lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all knowledge and learning. Now, as I did my research into this particular quote, because I want to, anytime I, I pull a quote from somewhere, I want to go back to original source documentation to see what was, you know, where, where was this? Now, it was difficult to find. And so here, here's what I found that there were, there were, I found that there were two things in question with regard to this quote. The first was as to whether the word Jesus was actually in front of the word Christ. Not that they denied that the quote was made, but that they wondered that, that the question was whether the word Jesus was in front of Christ. And so, man, if you keep the quote and just take out Jesus, but you still have Christ, still has the same impact. The second was the location of the quote. Some said that it was in the rules and precepts uh, book that was handed out to students. Others stated that the quote came from a different source, but that the document, the documented source was still something published by Harvard University so or by Harvard College at the time. Uh, in either event, here's what we know. Harvard is the oldest institution of higher learning in the United States. It was established in 1636. Furthermore, it was founded by Puritans who had anticipated the need for training clergy in the new world. Right. And they believed that a biblical worldview was imperative in that endeavor. And that's why they trained their students in the same way. Now, I could go on and on. Uh, here proving the point by quoting people like George Washington uh, or or Benjamin Rush, for example. I, I, as I was studying, I love this quote by Benjamin Rush. He said this, quote, Christianity is the only true and perfect religion and that in proportion as to mankind uh, uh, and, and that in proportion, I'm sorry, as mankind adopts its principles and obeys its precepts, they will be wise and happy. And what about Charles Carroll? He was another signer of the Declaration of Independence. He said this, quote, without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, they, they therefore, they therefore, who, de, who are decrying the Christian religion are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the, which is the best security for the duration of free governments. Now, I, I, I could go on and on and on. With these quotes, but I think you get the point I'm making. And here, here's the point at the end of the day. Those who founded our country held a biblical worldview. And this worldview set the stage for the ideas surrounding free markets, limited government, and the importance of God as the sovereign to whom we all will give an account. Okay, I hope I've made that absolutely clear. Now, as I stated earlier, the fundamental tenets of capitalism begin with a proper biblical worldview as it pertains to the sovereignty of God, not government, and the stewardship of man, not members of Congress. Now, briefly, for just a moment, I want to address the latter half of, of my premise, which is a biblical worldview teaches the stewardship of man, not members of Congress. By the stewardship of man, what I mean is the individual. Right. The individual. And by not members of Congress, what I mean is the collective, the collective. Uh, allow me just to cite a few examples. And let me be the first to say now that the founding fathers of our country uh, did not practice free market capitalism. Right. In the way that we experience it today. 
um, they they act they they actually and I, and I love what was said. I was I was uh, looking at Thomas uh, a a not an article but a, a video by Dr. Thomas Sowell. One of the things he said was that that uh, it was the mercantile exchange system that was used by the founding fathers, but they would be the ones that would perfect the capitalism that we enjoy today. Um, at the same time, their mercantile exchange included government intervention and heavy regulation and taxation. Now, some of you may call the famous or, or even infamous Boston Tea Party. Right, the Boston Tea Party that occurred, you might remember that from your history books, occurred December 16th, 1773 uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, there was an American colonist led by a group known as the Sons of Liberty. Right, the Sons of Liberty. They would dump 342 chests of British tea into the harbor. Now, some estimate that the amount of tea that was dumped into the harbor, if it were if it were calculated in today's dollars, would be upwards of a million dollars. And uh, uh, the the question remains: Why were they so upset? Why were they so angry? Well, as you look back in history, um, the, the the their native homeland, right, Britain, they had they had a, a acquired a tremendous amount of debt. In the taking on and fighting of wars. Now, those who are on the British side would say that a lot of the skirmishes and wars and battles that they were fighting uh, were in protection of the colonists who were dealing with Native Americans, who were dealing with all kinds of threats of violence of any type, and and that that the extra uh, British soldiers that were a part of the colonies in order to keep law and order were incurred were, were the cause of great debt to Britain. Uh, while others, the colonists would say, no, that wasn't the cause of the debt and that, they, that, that those in Britain were just looking to take advantage of a burgeoning economy that was happening there in uh, the United States. So, well, it wasn't the United States at the time in the colonies. <laughs> so, um, well, Britain had a, had a great deal uh, to do with this. So in, a, in an effort to decrease the, the debt, heavy taxes would follow, right? Some believe that the British were taking advantage of the colonists in, in the Americas by taxing everything from printed paper to playing cards. Now, there was this act. It was called the Townshend Act, the, Towns, the Townshend Act of 1767. Man, it was, incre- and it was an incredible tax. It taxed everything from pay- paint to paper to glass to lead to tea. Now, this tax levied by Britain came without any representation in Parliament. So there was no one that was in Parliament uh, as these as these acts were enacted uh, that were standing up for the cause and sake of those in the Americas to say, hey, no, we don't want that tax or we don't want this or or maybe we should look in another direction. They had no representation now fed up with taxation without represent uh, without representation. And triggered by a skirmish, there was a skirmish that had taken place. First of all, the, the, the colonists are upset. They're getting taxed every which way coming to Sunday, right? The, the second thing, they've got these British soldiers that, that are giving them a hard time in different spaces and places. In fact, there was a skirmish between the British soldiers and the, and the, and the men that I mentioned earlier called the Sons of Liberty, which resulted in, in an event called the Boston Massacre, where 18 men were shot by British, by, by, by British, British soldiers. And as a result of the Boston Massacre, tempers were flaring. And so some of the folks who were part of the Sons of Liberty would go out at night when these uh, ships came in, these British ships came in, and jumped onto the ships 
and 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 began to take over. Once they took over, they had uh, opportunity to uh, to to take and dump these 342 chests of British tea into the harbor, and so that's what became known as the Boston Tea Party. Now, in addition to the mercantile system, there were other forms of communal style living that were. Uh, that were attempted, that were tried. So you had the you had the the mercantile system that w- that was causing all kinds of disruption with heavy taxation, uh, without representation, uh, where government was heavily involved, and you also had communal style living. Right, this is more of the of the uh, of the socialism of its day. Right. Where where people would would gather in in communes and everyone would would, quote unquote, work and they would divide up all of the the resources of their labor to everyone. Well, the problem would be some would work hard and others were not would not. But regardless of how hard one worked and how how little the other worked, they all got an even share. Well, you know what happens in that instance? Everybody decides, you know what, if they're not working, I'm not working. And ultimately what happened was starvation and devastation. So the socialism experiment has been tried in America and it has absolutely failed. <laughs> it would it would be one of the original signatories of the Mayflower Compact, a guy by the name of William Bradford, who noted the tragic failure of this communal style living experiment. Later, Bradford would become the governor of the of Plymouth Colony. And when asked about the tragic failure of communal living or i.e. socialism, he stated the following, quote, by adopting the communal system, we thought we were wiser than God. We thought we were wiser than God. Well, why would he why would he say that? Why would he say that? I believe that the reason he said that was because he understood the biblical worldview and had deviated from that view and the practice of socialism and the practice of communal living. Right. I hope that makes sense. So with that said, I've, I've covered those two spaces and places. Let's move on to the morality that is inherent in the core tenets of capitalism. The morality. Yes, I said the morality inherent in the core tenets of capitalism. Now I want to begin by reading Exodus chapter 20 verses 9 and 10. Now I'm reading from the elect standard version. I better get it in while I can. So the elect standard version says this. In uh, Exodus 29 and 10, it says, quote, six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But in the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And on it, you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughter, your male or female servant, uh, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Uh, I, I could have gone back to, in fact, I probably should go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where God puts man in the Garden of Eden and he commands him to work it and to keep it. The point here is that it is God who ordains work, not greedy, not the greedy capitalist, right? It is God who ordains work, not greedy capitalists. It is God who has designed work and he designed it even uh, even uh, he designed work. He or rather I should say it this way. He did not design work after the fall. He designed it before the fall and for a blessing. So work is a blessing for man. We even even after the fall in Genesis chapter three, work is still in view. However, we're, we're told that work as a result of the curse will become more difficult. 
Now, in any event, as we keep Exodus chapter 20, uh, let's go back to verse 8, where in view what we have is a clear command to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, followed by six days you shall labor and do all of your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath. So that's kind of what we're reading uh, in that space. Here's what here's the bottom line. All of our work is done under the authority and view of God and is is designed as a blessing to mankind. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, in the culture in which we live, most seem to abhor work and our culture is continuing to have a disdain for hard work or especially the, the success that comes from hard work. Now, ra- rather than walking you all the way back through the impact of the false theology of socialism to explain how work became a, a dirty four letter word. Right. I want to encourage our listeners just to go back and listen to our previous episode on the theology of socialism. Uh, If you go back and listen to that particular episode, you're going to learn more about how we got to this place where where work is a dirty four letter word uh, and, and, and the false theology behind the tenets, the core tenets of socialism. Needless to say, I want to say this and be clear uh, to, to to say that God it is God who created work. It is not the greedy. It is not greedy capitalists who created work. Let me draw your attention for uh, from a standpoint of, of scripture to Proverbs chapter 22, verse two uh, in the elect standard version. It says this, uh, the rich and the poor meet together. The rich and the poor meet together and the Lord is the maker of them all. What is what is that saying? At the end of the day, God, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What about Proverbs 22, 29? Of course, in the elect standard version, it says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings and he will not stand before obscure men. Proverbs 14, 23 and 24 says this in all toil there is profit but mere talk tends only to poverty the crown of the wise is their wealth but the folly of fools brings folly now what we see here is that a god is sovereign right and that work is a blessing work is a blessing that the skillful man in work will stand before kings and, and, and finally, that mere talk tends to poverty, but that the crown of the wise is their wealth and the folly of fools brings folly. Let me pause here to say that within this within this one within, within these verses, rather, we we have. Uh, we, and in fact, let me go back because I want to I want to I want to go back and, and read to you Proverbs 28, uh, 19, 28, 19, Proverbs 28, 19. And the elect standard says this. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So in this one verse, here's what we have. We have land ownership. He who works his his land, right? We have land ownership and, and the blessing of work. What's the blessing? That he will have plenty of bread. We also have the acknowledgement that there are pursuits that are worthless and that those worthless pursuits deserve the po- deserve the poverty that follows but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty 
<laughs> I mean, so with, with all of what we've covered, the ground we've covered, let's stop for a minute and assess where we are and what we have thus far. All right. Number one. We've defined capitalism, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go back through the definition of capitalism, but we've defined it. Number two, we've defined crony capitalism and the fact that in order for it to be crony capitalism, government intervention has to be at an overreach capacity, right? So what we don't really necessarily have, we have, the, we have that which is contrary to actual free markets, right? I've also posited the idea, of, of that, the idea that the free market has its root in a biblical worldview where God is sovereign, not governments, and man is a steward, not members of Congress. I've used scripture to establish God as sovereign. I've used Genesis 1, 27 through 29, and I've used Proverbs 22, 2. And I've also used scripture to establish that man as a, man is a steward. I've used Exodus 20, 9 and 10. I've used Genesis 2, 15. I've used Proverbs 14, 23 and 24. Proverbs 22, 29 and Proverbs 28, 19. So if you're taking notes, you might want to want to pause here, go back and capture all those at, write that down. One, two, three. And then under three, I have a which is I've used scripture to establish God as sovereign. Genesis one twenty seven through twenty nine. Proverbs twenty two and two. And B is I've used scripture to establish man as a steward. Exodus twenty nine and ten. Genesis two fifteen. Proverbs fourteen twenty three and twenty four. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. And Proverbs 28, 19. Number four, we've examined the fact that the founding fathers informed by a biblical worldview established our nation. And finally, number five, we've established that while while they being the founders did not practice free markets or free market capitalism as we know it uh, in the form we have today, they laid the framework for what we now experience. All right. So those are the five things thus far that we've established. So we've, uh, I've, I've mentioned in the course of the conversation, the greed of capitalists, right? Greedy capitalists. You hear that term often. So I've mentioned that twice. And basically I, I, I say it kind of tongue in cheek and, and, and those who hate capitalism would probably lay this to our charge. If we believe that capitalism is so great, then what does God's word have to say about those who are less fortunate what does the bible have to say what does god have to say how, how does he help those who are less fortunate you know the detractors of capitalism posit that the capitalistic system is full of evil selfish rich i'd add white people right <laughs> evil selfish rich white people who abuse others and steal from the have-nots in order to fulfill their materialistic lust Right. Let me say that again. The detractors of capitalism, the detractors of capitalism posit that the capitalistic system is full of evil, selfish, rich, um, white people who abuse and steal from others from the have nots in order to fulfill their materialistic lust. Now, capitalism, like any system, is filled with sinful people who desire all kinds of immoral things. However, to assume that another system, say socialism, is inherently moral and devoid of the effect of sinful human beings is foolish and dangerously destructive on, on, on so many on so many levels. And, and, and at this point, I, I would even I would even argue that, that capitalism 
uh, is has as its basis based upon a biblical worldview uh, is is actually moral. In fact, I'll I'll make the case here in just a bit. At this point, I just want to examine what some argue are the abuses of the free of free market capitalism. The charge the charge by many is that capitalism is a system where the greedy take advantage of the weak for the benefit of a few. And on its face, this is absolutely false. Uh, the reason why is this: capitalism involves the free exchange of goods and services no one is forced to purchase anything it's socialism that requires the exchange of goods and services at a price determined by government at the point of a gun or at the threat of government right now here i want to quote from our episode on socialism where we cited the article uh, on on uh, on the website the federalist uh, which included a survey that showed that 53 percent of 18 to 29 year olds, 53% of 18 to 29 year olds had a favorable view of socialism compared to only 25% of Americans over the age of 55. And so, in fact, in a recent Washington Post article, it stated that when confronted with the actual definition of socialism, government ownership of the means of production. This is the, this is the definition. Government ownership of the means of production or government running businesses. Only 32 percent of millennials favor an economy managed by the government. So, again, this this quote that I that I that I picked up, it's it's something that we covered at great length in our previous episode on socialism. It's in, in fact, some of it is, is, is some of the language that, that Daryl used. And so I want to attribute that to him. So what's my point? The point that I'm making here is that those who desire uh, the, the free promise that all, that is always provided by government, uh, they, they want it. They want to embrace that free promise of government more than they want to embrace the, the freedom of having the opportunity to work hard in a free market capitalistic society, they tend to be those who have who have who have not worked very long uh, at all. Right. So so these are people who haven't worked very long, have grown up in a in have grown up experiencing the benefits of free market capitalism, who, who believe that they are now entitled to more free stuff and and uh, entitlement ends up the language of entitlement ends up changing into a right so you have an entitlement to health care that actually becomes a right to free health care you have an, you have an entitlement uh to uh you know uh, uh land or to housing or to i i heard i heard a, a an entitlement or, or a right to free air or a right to, I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was, uh, I'm trying to remember where that, where that came from. I think it was, uh, was, was Ocasio Cortez who was, who was, you know, blathering on about free, free air and, uh, or clean air. It was a right to clean air and a right to clean water and a right to this and a right to that. And again, all of that is, is the language found in the socialistic, uh, in, in circles around socialism. So, what should our biblical worldview be regarding hard work? How should we fight off the tendency toward materialism? And does God really care about the person that has been 
disadvantage. And so in, in the time that we have remaining, I really want to walk through uh, these three questions because I feel like uh, they are some of the questions that get asked or get or where where those who hold a different uh, economic worldview and economic uh, ideology begin to begin to challenge us. Right. They really want to know, you know, uh, you know, hard work. What, what does that look like? Why do I have to engage in it? I want to know how much free time, how many days off, how many benefits you're going to provide. And, and all of those benefits are their right. Right. Rather than the idea of hard work. And they all often cite the fact that the workers must unite, uh, that they, they must all gather together because it is their work that is the cause of of great wealth and great benefit. Uh, to all and and uh, and so I want to I want to address uh, those particular issues as we as we navigate here over the course of time. The second thing that I want to address is the question of how should we fight off the tendency toward materialism, right? Materialism and and does the Bible have anything to say about that? Uh, what does the Bible have to say about that particular issue? And uh, and, and again, the charge by by those who who oppose that capitalism is that it, it's nothing but a but a greedy opportunity for the for the haves to take from the have nots uh, for for others who who have wealth who have material uh, wealth to um, to stand in opposition uh, to, to to hold hold down the worker. Right. And, and to and to take advantage of, of their, you know, of, of their privilege. I mean, that's that's the language that we're hearing nonstop uh, within within the culture. And then finally, does God care about the person who's been disadvantaged? And really not not simply does God care, because I think they the, the socialistic worldview is devoid of any acknowledgement of God unless it is used for the purpose of guilting. Uh, those of us who hold a biblical worldview, it's used as, as a lever to guilt us into uh, the compulsion of giving, you know, rather than rather than anything else. It, 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 so God is used as, as a lever uh, to add to, to to take from us. Uh, to, 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 to force us uh, into something that, uh, that is done based upon government compulsion rather than, than the free will of our own uh, desire to do well by others. And so, so let's, let's take a look at this issue, the issue of, of, um, of hard work, right? So grab your elect standard version and turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, we'll read from verses 6 through verse 11. Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 11. It says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have a right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even if we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not as busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. All right, the Apostle Paul here, he's addressing idleness 
in Thessalonica, right? Briefly, by way of by way of context, um, you know, First and Second Thessalonians is often known as the eschatological epistle, the eschatological epistles. Now, why? Why is it, why is it called that? It's called that because the, the the people in Thessalonica were often focused on matters surrounding end times, and false teachers would arise, often pointing followers of Christ to er- in, in errant directions. Right on the matters of work and morality and purity and holy living. Now, Paul, addressing many of these issues in his letters, he deals with the matter or the issue of work uh, as some believing that the Lord's day or the day of the Lord is going to be evident, uh, eminent. Some have given themselves to idleness in anticipation of the day of the Lord's return. So you had people who were so caught up in end times and trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and false teachers amplifying that, that people were idle. They were thinking, well, if, if the Lord's coming back, what's the point of working? I'm just going to sit by and wait till the Lord returns. And Paul absolutely discourages them uh, from doing this. Paul doesn't encourage them to live off of the wealth of others. Instead, he admonishes them to follow his example of hard work to their great benefit. So again, hard work is not evil. Paul Paul goes on further to say in in Second Thessalonians three ten that if anyone ten b right, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I mean, I, I don't know how Scripture could be any more clear. Now, if we could examine, if we had time, I would examine the parable of the talents in Matthew twenty five fourteen verses fourteen through thirty. For the sake of time, I, I won't walk through that. However, for those of you who are taking notes, I'd encourage you uh, to examine that parable with a lens regarding the value of hard work. You'll find it difficult to promote an agenda of socialism with those particular verses of Scripture in mind. Now, what about materialism? What about the materialism? Some believe that materialism is, is inherent in capitalism. And, and I, I'd, I'd actually argue the opposite, that that that. Materialism is actually inherent in socialism. In fact, I, I loved what I heard Thomas Sowell say, uh, and I, I think I've heard this picked up by Ben Shapiro. He was saying the fact that socialism actually breaks three of the Ten Commandments. The, the first one is social. The, the first commandment, where socialism replaces God with government, and 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 this breaks the second commandment. Right? You have no other gods before me. So socialism replaces God with government. And that breaks the second commandment. And then and then socialism takes what belongs to but be, takes what belongs to someone else. Socialism takes or steals, I should say, steals what belongs to someone else. This breaks the eighth commandment. Thou shall not steal. And then finally, socialism, uh, it, it invalidates. It breaks the 10th commandment, causing causing one to covenant covet. Socialism causes one to covet thy neighbor's things. Now, this breaks the 10th commandment, the not to covet. And maybe you can think of more commandments that are broken by socialism, but I, I don't want to digress. Let me get back to materialism or the materialism of capitalism. Let's, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this particular issue. Now, grab your elect standard version and turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. And it reads, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. Now, the focus of this passage is not is not that you're being told not to have wealth, but rather to make sure that 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 which you treasure, that which is most important is actually God himself. Right. It is often easy to get focused on the gift apart from the giver. This is what's so abominable about the prosperity movement, about the prosperity, the quote unquote prosperity gospel, right, which is no gospel at all. They seek to replace God with gifts. They seek to replace the gospel with goodies, right? The right proper view of wealth is as a gift from the master rather than an end in and of itself. Well, finally, what does the Bible say about those who've been disadvantaged? What does the Bible say about those who've been disadvantaged? Uh, The Bible from Old Testament to New Testament encourages the believer to be compassionate and generous with those in need. Man, if I had time, I could I'd I'd walk you all uh, through what the the instruction uh, God gave to to the to the people of Israel for the gleaning of the fields and 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 what we would what 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 should be done for those who are in need. And, And I would argue that America is the most generous nation in the world. Furthermore, I'd I'd argue that those who believe in God are are far more giving than those whose worldview is absent an acknowledgement of God's existence. In an article uh by uh philanthropy round by the philanthropy round table, it's called Who Gives the Most to Charity? Here's what their research found. Quote Among individual givers in the U in the US, while the wealthy do their part Uh, The vast predominance of offerings come from average citizens of moderate income. Between 70 and 90 percent of all U.S. households donate to charity in a given year. And the typical household's annual gifts add up to between two and three thousand dollars. This is different from the patterns in any other country. Let me read that again. This is different from the patterns in any other country. Per capita, Americans voluntarily donate about seven times as much. Let me read that again. Per capita, Americans voluntarily donate about seven times as much as continental Europeans. Even our even our cousins in the in the in the Canadas give to charity at substantially lower rates and at half of the total volume of an American household. There are many reasons for this distinction. Foremost is the fact that ours is the most religious nation in the industrial world. Religion motivates giving more than any other factor. A second explanation is our deep-rooted tradition of mutual aid, which has impressed observers like, uh, like, uh, like Tocqueville, Tocqueville, uh, since our since our founding days, uh, I, I will, I'm always saying de Tocqueville. I'm probably p- totally butchering uh, Alex de Tocqueville's uh, name. Uh, f- forgive me for that. Since, but 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 the point is being made that it is religion that motivates giving more than any other factor, and that from the very beginning of our founding, that was something that was recognized by historians who came to visit. The United States of America. Third is the point is the is the potent entrepreneurial impulse in the U.S. 
which generates overflowing wealth that can be shared while simultaneously encouraging a bootstrap ethic that says that we should help our neighbors pull themselves up, partly because in our freewheeling economy, we could be the ones who need help next time. So what that's saying is that in our entrepreneurial free market economy, we have the ability to simultaneously help someone while encouraging them to in uh, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Why? Because we recognize that it may be us who who have need next time. And that that need, while we're doing all we can to pick us up, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, we may indeed have need that someone may be able to help with and fulfill. Well, what does scripture say? What does scripture say? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, scripture tells us this. It instructs us, it instructs us rather, uh, to, to deal with those who are less fortunate in this way. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the person who's down on their luck, who, who maybe you've heard the, the narrative, you know, the, well, they, there's almost a justification for them to go out and steal. There's almost a justification. For, we understand why they would break into that, that building or break into that store and take because they, they don't have. That's not that's not how scripture views this scripture instructs them. Let them let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. First, John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, uh, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What is that saying? That's just simply the encouragement, the admonition for those of us who have God, who love God to be giving. But again, the giving is not based upon on upon government compulsion. It's based upon the acknowledgement of what God has done on our behalf. It's based on the understanding that we are indeed sinners ourselves, that we owe a debt to God that we cannot repay. And that as a result of that debt, while we were unable, unable, incapable, dead in sin and trespasses, that the sovereign God of the universe would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die a death that he did not deserve on a Roman cross. In an effort to redeem mankind so that if we would but repent of our sin and place our full faith in Jesus Christ, we would inherit eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. That understanding, the understanding of the gospel, the understanding of a biblical worldview is what informed those who founded this nation. Flawed men as they were, uh, slave owners as some were. They understood the debt that was paid on their behalf by a sovereign God, that they would repent of sin, that they would place their faith in Christ, and that the individual, uh, the individual person uh, had, had inherent value, dignity, and worth. Not the, not the collective, not the government. And I, I didn't even take the time, and I should have. I mean, this would be two hours. We could do a two-hour treatise on this to go back and look at, uh, look at that, that King Saul. And, and when government was actually formed that was outside of, of, of God's direct plan for the people of Israel, when, 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 
when Israel first gets a king and what God says will happen to them as a result. I mean, we could have gone through that and walked through that and, and maybe at some other time we will. But I just want to encourage you, if you had an opportunity to listen to this, my hope is that it was an encouragement to you, that you understand that there is a, a, a biblical foundation, uh, that the biblical worldview helps with the foundations of capitalism uh, and that those foundations come from a moral base, right? Come from a moral base. And that's the standard by which capitalism, I believe, the, the, the manner in which we should have a biblical view of capitalism. So it's with that I'll stop here. I'm so thankful again for the opportunity to to uh, to share this uh platform. Uh looking forward to next week when uh when my brother Daryl uh is back. Uh man there's a whole bunch I could say on the back end of this. Uh you know, dangerous Daryl, Hollywood Harrison, all that. I'm sure my brother Andrew Rappaport will be will be happy that I got that in. Uh, again, he is the boss. He's the man in charge. Uh, I am definitely Robin to his Batman. And uh, man, I'm glad to glad to be on this ride with you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, definitely check in with us next time for for the next edition of the Just Thinking broadcast. Take care and God bless. <laughs>